This season, the Old Gold Club and Wolves TV Matchday Live are powered by Blythe Group. An industry-leading construction company and family-run business since 1982, driving investment and infrastructure across the UK. Blythe Group's mission is to provide an unrivaled service based on innovative, bespoke building solutions and comprehensive customer support. If you're a skilled tradesperson and you want to join the team that powers our team, contact their bases in Wolverhampton, Manchester or Maidenhead via theblythegroup.co.uk. Blythe Group. Big enough to deliver, small enough to care. Old Gold Club, powered by Blythe Group, official partner of Wolverhampton Wanderers. So hello there, I'm Mikey Burrows. Welcome along to another episode of Old Gold Club, My Golden Game, where we speak to ex-players and fans about their favourite memories of matches involving the Old Gold. Delighted to say that we're joined by a man who's joined us quite a few times, actually, on our Match Day Live Extra coverage. Hello, Alex Ray, how are you? Yeah, I'm doing well, Mikey. Thank you. Yourself? I'm good, pal. I'm good. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of people who are kind of won't be surprised by the game that you've chosen because I think for an awful lot of supporters it's a, like a real iconic moment yeah well what I remember about it Mikey was the, the worst celebration that I've ever done it was an absolute shamble pirouetting in the middle of the uh, in front of all the Wolves fans and um, you know making an ass in myself Um but when you look at the emotion, the raw emotion, it's actually, Mikey, I, I think I scored round about 135, 140 goals over, over the course of my career. And there's only one picture that I have in my house of me doing a, a pirouette. And I think it was David Bagnall, the old, uh, he used to do all the, the Expressing Star stuff. Uh, he he sent me the picture that I got and if my memory serves me right as I'm pirouetting in the air there's a St Andrew's flag in the background a Scottish flag in amongst the Wolves fans and there's just a, 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 a as you say that the, the raw emotion but there was a, there was a lot more to that celebration than I think a lot of the Wolves fans <laughs> actually knew because before the game, Dave mentioned, uh, kind of read out the team sheet and I was on the bench that day. So I was, uh, I was going through a period where, and, and listen, you have to respect the manager because Colin Cameron and Ince were doing great in the middle of the park. We were on a good roll since the turn of the year. So I was kind of playing uh, kind of second fiddle to these two guys. So during the warm-up, just before the game, we used to do... Uh, a fitness coach used to set up round about the 18 yard box and we would run from the shy line into the 18 yard box and then we'd spin back out and come back to the come back to the line and this, this was maybe about I don't know 40 minutes before kickoff and there was hardly anyone in the stadium and uh, this Reading fan runs from the halfway line about 30 yards and he runs right down the touch line and he starts shouting to Paul Inns Inns you're an asshole." And uh, which, which all the fans absolutely love. Uh, sorry, all the players loved. <laughs> so, so NC was going. I ain't having this. So, um, 
Anyway, when Ince's running back, he's going, piss off, who are you, you know, buy and sell you, I'm a multi, but we're, lo- we're absolutely loving it. But this guy's standing at the wall, about eight feet from Portland, I'm thinking to myself, so I'm winding up Ince, and I'm saying, Ince, this guy's got you in toast, he's got you in toast, right? So we're all doing a stretch, and Ince's looking about and goes, if any of us, any of us score, we have to go to this guy, we have to go to him and give him pelters. So anyway, as I scored the goal, it dawned on me and I starts pointing to the guy's seat where he sat down with his heads in his hands. <laughs> and uh, and, we, and we, me, Paul Lentz and the boys start berating this Reading fan going, piss off you asshole. So uh, that was the story behind that actual celebration. But um, when you actually think about the game, Reading had a a lion's share of the the possession that night. It was really backs to the wall. I thought they, I thought they were excellent, and it was just a kind of up and coming. A lot of young guys there just starting out in their career, and uh, you know, um, thankfully we got the job done because that was really the catalyst uh, to go in and and get the result in the in the the cup final. But you know, when you look at some of the players, the young boy Harper and all that as well. Uh, uh, Jamie Curtin, Murray, Schmig, uh, Eddie Williams, and all that. So they, they, they had some decent players uh, in their squad, but to, just to get to, to I think, well, it was Cardiff at that time was was great. And and you're right, it was an iconic moment. I mean, I, I love that explanation for it because I was going to ask you about kind of the. I think you put your hands to your, up to your ears as well. Obviously, we're talking about fourteenth um, of May. 2003 the playoff semi-final second leg at Reading where actually you didn't start the game and you kind of hadn't been starting too many games leading up to it no that that's absolutely right as I said I was playing second fiddle to uh to TNC and uh Colin Cameron and and it, the good see the interesting thing about this Mikey assuming you get to my age see if I had been 23 I would have been kind of sulking and things um, and, and but you have a bigger uh, perspective when you realise about the importance of you know. I always ref, uh, refer back to that time when when I came to uh, Wolves. Uh, old Sir Jack had spent tens of millions trying to get the club into the Premiership, and and I think he was kind of getting to the end of his tether where you know he spent so much money. You can have a few false dawns, and even if you go back to the year before when we were in a, a terrific position. Uh, to, to, to get automatic promotion and we, and we kind of just caved in at the end uh, and we, we ran out of steam so uh, you're right um, but uh, you know I was, to, to, you, when I come on you realise that you know you're just there to try and do a job everybody wants to get to the premiership it's what you know as a footballer you want to uh, I'd, I'd left uh, Sunderland to come down a division to try and bounce straight back up but unfortunately it took us to a second year so I'd, I'd no issues with, with Dave's uh, uh, situation about actually playing in St Paul because they were the ones that actually got us into that position. I, I think I actually played about forty odd games that season, but I, I, you know there have been a few of them off the bench. I would imagine. Yeah, well, I mean, you were kind of like the almost the player of the season for the first half of the season. I remember when we did the re-reviewed during lockdown, we were watching the season review of that campaign and it's kind of like the first half of the year, it's all you. And then the second half of the year, it's like Colin Cameron kind of took over as that pivotal role of the team. No, no, listen, without doubt. And I think that's a good thing about it is, is because I'll be honest with you, when, when Ince came in at the... Because obviously I did well my initial 
uh, first season. And then when Ince came in at the, the start of that campaign, I thought to myself, because me and Ince were very similar in that respect, but Colin was a bit, a good bit younger than me and Paul. So I'm thinking to myself, to, to, to go with me and Ince then, you know, to go with me and Ince with a, for a full course of the season. So I knew that, you know, Colin would have to have played a big part as well because everybody knows Colin's energy and, you know, his appetite for the game. You know, he scored goals from the middle of the park as well, uh, which was important. You know, like that that incident you talked about pre-game in the build-up, is that something that almost like helps take away the nerves a little bit? Because I imagine, you know, you had a 2-1 lead going into the game, but given what had happened the year before, there must have been some nerves, some pressure that kind of always built up on those kind of occasions. Yeah, without doubt. Uh, when you... Um if you see if you were playing in the playoffs, regardless of age, I think me and Paul were about 32, 33, 34 even. Um, and obviously, NC had done a lot. You know, uh, I'd won the title with uh, Sunderland a couple of years previous. But it's the moments that actually keep you going. See that? See what you're saying about the nerves and all that. They're the things that actually I miss as a footballer. Going, going to uh, the stadium uh, prior to every kickoff. My my hands were actually ice cold. And, and I was actually sweating, you know, my armpits were sweating because of the nerves. And that's how, I, I don't often speak about this, but I used to get really nervous leading up to games, but it was more of a, I'm saying nervous, it was more of a an excitement of the going to battle. And it's one of the things I miss now that I'm not involved in football because, you know, that's the thing, you're actually chasing, you know, that's the thing that keeps you going, it's the thing that keeps you... It keeps you hungry, uh, and I always got it leading up to games. So the, 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 because of the magnitude of the playoffs, uh, it just escalated it a little bit more. So you, it sounds like you're kind of talking like you needed that adrenaline, I guess, to be able to go out and do what you did. Yeah, without doubt, uh, and it's, it's interesting uh, that that never leaves you. I go and play five sides now. We we all these kind of motley crew: Frank McAvaney, Ali McCoy, Chris Boyd. So I play all with these guys, and even leading up to it, I still get that little buzz, and 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 it's, it's the the competition, it's the I'm going to beat you, it's that kind of will to win. It has never, it still hasn't left me, and so much so that I've got this running battle on social media with Chris Boyd because I'm going to start calling him uh, Chris Trump because he's pure fake news. I actually beat him a couple of weeks ago and I was walking, unfortunately the fans are not on, I was doing some media work at Ibrooks, and I was talking to the head of uh, communications at Rangers, a guy called David Graham, and I said to him, I said, David, look at big boy Dave, he's sitting about 10 rows up, and I went, that's how close he's got to me in the last three weeks, right? <laughs> <laughs> but Chris Boyd's video me, unbeknown to me, he's got his phone up, and he's shouting him down there, going, there's we Alex, still smiling after getting his ass spanked at football, yesterday and I'm thinking what's he talking about fake news make it it's known as fake news he's never he's, he hasn't beat me since we come back for lockdown and uh, but it's that buzz and that laugh and I think that camaraderie that uh, that I think most players miss after football do you think that's why that team managed to overcome what it did because it had characters like you and Paul Ince and I guess Nathan Blake and Paul Butler that had that little extra special something that you'd gone through a lot in your careers and you still had that desire to make sure you got over the line? Yeah, well, the, the, that I've, I've often says about the personalities in that Wolves dressing room. The, it was uh, egos are us. The, everybody's ego was bigger than the next guy, and uh, everybody had everything to say to each other. And uh, but 
I think the underlying thing is they were all desperate to, as you said, he'd obviously Blakey, he'd Colin Cameron, who was vocal, Ince was vocal, Mark Kennedy, you know, and then obviously Dennis was quiet, but he said that when he spoke, everybody kind of, kind of, kind of stood back and listened due to what he'd actually achieved in the game, and then you'd obviously big Paul Butler and. Uh, so, so you had a dressing room full of them, uh, and as as I said, everybody was trying to pull in the right direction, and I think there were some lessons to learn from that first season of the disappointment. Because we talk about um, adrenaline, when you kind of get the nod to come on with 15 minutes to go of a game which is in the balance, in a way, and Reading have to take the game to you, did you have a feeling beforehand that, you could be the man to produce that key moment, Mikey. I, I every time I went out to a gate, uh, like any game, regardless whether it was a playoff game or things, I always felt as if I could impact it because I, in Millwall I was known as hot shot Hamish. You know, I was always looking to take a shot for anywhere, and players used to say I was quite greedy and something. They probably got a point as well. So I always felt as if if I got an opportunity in around about the box whether it's from distance or that instinctive as I said earlier on most people had me down as like a kind of an aggressive tackler and so forth but I always had an instinct for goals um, and, and that's what I was saying earlier on you know about 100 and, I think it was about 140 goals in my career so I always had that feeling that I could make a difference and uh, it, it, when I look back at all the over all the years I don't think I can recall a goal similar to that. Getting my, you know, my back to goal in about the eighteen yard box, turning and trying to do a few jinks. It didn't. It, it none of that kind of. I couldn't off the top of my head replicate um, one like that because I actually managed to drag it back through Eddie Williams' legs into the far corner. So, um, so I always did. I always felt as if I could always impact um, games. Because actually, when you look back on the goal, and I've, I've given it quite a few watches in the build-up to doing this as well, like it's a really good goal, the build-up play through Cameron and Blake, and then your initial kind of control on the edge of the box was like Burkamp-esque at Newcastle. <laughs> I miss his Burkamp. I don't, I don't think you could ever label it and let me to, to Burkamp. But um, no, but I know it was. As I said, it was very strange because I didn't really receive the ball. If most, mostly I used to come on to things at the edge of the box where I could get a little step over and get a shot off, or it was someone Blakey or someone laying it off, and then you're coming on to it and getting a shot, or, or when a, a cross where you can get across the face of someone. So it was a totally unique type of goal for me. But I think that's what caught them. And um, uh, I, I used to play with a guy, Malcolm Allen, and he used to do that all the time where, you know, he would get it out of his feet and naturally a defender would lunge to try and put a block on. And it's almost as if he kind of mishit it back through the legs. Uh, so I, I, over the course of my career as well, that was something that I tried to kind of... Uh, implement into my own game when it was a very tight situation where you could just drag it back through people's legs because as soon as it goes through the defender's legs then the keeper's most certainly going to be uh, unsighted and rooted to the spot unfortunately that's what happened because it ran to the far corner because is there a moment after you've hit it when you're like that's in like that you know it because obviously the goalkeeper's diving across you say it's gone through the kind of defender's legs at what point are you like that's in. Well, uh, see, see, as soon as you hit it, you know it's got a chance, Mikey. So then, then you're just waiting for the net to to ripple. Um, because, as I said to you, because once you get the shot off, you know, you know that the goalkeeper's unsighted, and because you've hit it quite early as well, 
uh, then normally they get caught uh, flat-footed and then, then he tries to spring at that stage. So it's really down to the connection. Uh, so it's almost like dragging it back in and uh, you, you see it time after time. And uh, it's something I even when I was coaching in that with the strikers, it's because everybody's so content to try and curl balls into the far corner. And sometimes it's the ones that you actually kind of just drag through people's legs that gives the goalkeeper no chance. You obviously went on to, I mean, you didn't, feature in the in the final I mean it's it's one of those kind of strange things that kind of comes through it but then you had some really kind of key moments in the Premier League even though it didn't really work out for the team yeah absolutely it was um the, listen that was a disappointing thing because after not featuring for pretty much the second part of that second year you know obviously I was playing little kind of cameos and things but um I actually thought at that stage, you know, because Cam's and uh, NC had done so well, I thought they would, uh, Dave would have uh, started with these guys. So uh, once I get my opportunity to come in, I managed to get a few goals uh, that Premiership year, uh, which was great because ultimately it got me a move back to Scotland, um, which, you know, went back to my boyhood club, Rangers. And um, so, no, it was disappointing. Uh, you know, I think when you look back, that was the catalyst after 20 years you know, for the club to actually get some serious money behind them, some Premier League money, and it's allowed them to kind of bounce up and down. And the, the club looks really stable now. Well, this is the thing, and and I think kind of people don't realise um, the impact that football clubs have on people because obviously you've been back and done some media stuff with us. You came and did our old Gold Club live, uh, which seems like a lifetime ago. And and I mean, occasionally you and I will message because even if you're not involved with our coverage, you're still keen to find out what's going on with the club. Yeah, Mikey, I was working on radio last week. And one of the the other presenter guys, who is an ex footballer, he, he said live in the air. He says, uh, he says I've not really got a great deal of interest for any clubs. You know, I was an employee there, and and so forth. I'm I'm actually the polar opposite. Uh, I, you know, I've actually kind of with Wolves in particular. So you know, I've always to look out for the results. I'm always interested to see what's happening. Uh, Sunderland as well uh, and, and the clubs because when you spend 14 years of your life you, you become part of their history uh, and they become part of you so you know I didn't I, I didn't have the same perspective as, as this chap last week but listen everyone's entitled to them so I do I, I look out for all the clubs even Millwall uh, where I spent six years you know spent I think 260 games or 70 whatever it was and then obviously the, it was over 100 with Wolves so all these clubs, even going back to my to my youth days with Falkirk, so they are part of you. You, you remember guys like Husey who who did all the kind of you know uh, all the, the the stuff with all the kind of memorabilia outside, all the silverware and things. Guys that have been there for fifty years. You know, you get fame, reception, and even guys like Richard Scudo. I, I often talk about Jez Moxley, who was the chief. So there's guys that have been there. Uh, for years, uh, I used to still keep in touch with Rachel before she passed away as well. You know, so uh, and and then you've got the celebrity side of things where you've got um, uh, you know Beverly Knight. You know, I saw, so I used to go and see Beverly because of her connection with Wolves as well. 
Because how much of that do you think is down to, uh, you know, your relationship with the fans and the fact that because of the way you played, you became this iconic figure for the team during that period? And I guess kind of the the love and adoration that comes from the stands then gets kind of shown back from you. Yeah, it, well, I think that's pivotal, isn't it? Because the thing is, if you go into a football club, and the fans were dog hounding you at the door. Then you wouldn't you wouldn't have the same. Listen, if you were talking about management, that's a different ball game. <laughs> but what I'm saying to you is, is, if you look at as I said, I spent um, 14 years with three football clubs, and the fans were pivotal because at Millwall when I started off, I was just a young boy coming down from Scotland, and then you then they, I think when you have a particular style as well, and you know. No, no, the best player to ever grace any of the clubs that I played for. But when you actually get wired in, in particularly the, the the areas, they appreciate that. You know, they want to see players giving their all. Uh, and when you do that, then when you get back there, you're always kind of received fondly. Uh, but I've often said this, Mikey. I didn't want to go to Wolves. You know, I didn't. I was actually in the English Premiership. I was settled. I just had a young family, and then all of a sudden, I'm getting down, getting shown uh, down to Wolves, and um, and uh, but. Right for the off because of the way you play, because of that relationship with the fans, uh, and because the club's going in the right direction, uh, then all of a sudden everything's rosy, and and it's a fond part. I look back at it fondly. Thanks for listening to the Old Gold Club, powered by Blythe Group. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and rating from wherever you get your podcasts. Wolves TV, the home of live uninterrupted radio commentary of every single Wolves game. But that's not all. Wolves TV also brings you extended and alternative match highlights, interviews with the team, behind-the-scenes features and training coverage, plus see every goal Wolves score from every angle. So check out Wolves TV online at wolves.co.uk or on the move via the Wolves app.